Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Joel Gator-Warsh is an integrative and holistic pediatrician in LA. He completed his pediatric residency at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, where he received the George Donald Society Research Fellow. He has a private practice and is also currently on staff at Cedar sinai Hospital. And today, we're not going to just talk about kids, we're going to talk about all things mental health, immune resilience, and how we can all collectively emerge from COVID-19 stronger. Joel, welcome. Thanks for having me on. So it's great to have you on. A lot of what we're going to talk about is very top of mind for Colleen and I, and a lot of people who are concerned parents trying to make the best of what we've what we're dealing with right now and where i want to start i'm very curious in your practice what are you seeing when it comes to mental health of, of not only children but also parents this is difficult for everyone it's so difficult for everyone and it's really interesting and sad because it's really over the last few months it's just spiraled downward and it's so obvious that everybody is suffering, but what I think is really difficult for a lot of people is they don't realize that everybody is suffering. As a doctor, as a pediatrician, I get to see it every day. I get to see people coming in and out, and I get to see how everybody is more anxious, more depressed, more stressed, but they're not really connecting that everybody else is feeling that way as well. And, and I've just seen this continual spiral downwards of, of more sadness, more anxiety, more depression, and just people just look down. You can just tell. I've never felt what I feel in the office right now, and it's just the energy that that is here is just nothing like I've seen. Usually people are either they're happy to come in or it's more joyful or we're, we're talking about their baby and now it's more of a therapy session almost. You know, I'm seeing that with, with families. And when I talk about how our kid's doing, most of the time, it's kind of a quick answer. It's like, oh, they're fine. School's going well, everything like that. But now it's it's a very long, sad answer almost. It's it's just very much like we're ha- we're struggling. We're having a tough time. A lot of people are thinking about moving, or they have moved. They just don't have the support that they need. It's, it's tough. It, it's it's really tough. I mean, people are really struggling. And and where I am located in in, in Los Angeles, it's a pretty affluent area. And, and even in this area, people are struggling beyond anything I've ever seen before. I mean, we, we have lost probably a quarter of our patients to people that have moved. And people are just not able to handle it, not able to cope, just having a lot of difficulty. So you mentioned schooling and there's at-home schooling where mm-hmm. some people don't have the option right now. You're at home, you're doing virtual, you're doing Zoom school, and some people are in school. Before we get to like the, the big discussion of what your recommendation is or your feelings on that subject, I, I want to start with those who are doing at-home schooling. What, what are you seeing? Is how is that affecting children, and how is that affecting parents? It's tough on them. A lot of kids don't enjoy doing homeschooling. They, they aren't as focused. They aren't seeing the results that they. Have. They're not. They're, they don't have the oversight like they would necessarily at school. But I think it's more from a social aspect where, where kids are really suffering. They they miss their friends, especially as you get into the older kids, the teens. You know, it's such a social age, 
and they're really not getting the feedback in their response. And it almost just becomes monotonous. It's the same thing every day. It's like Groundhog Day. You're getting up, you're going to the computer, uh, and there just isn't that push to, to do the schoolwork or see the forest through the trees. It's just kind of the same thing every day. And I, I hear a lot of parents talk to me about how their kids are struggling, how they're struggling to even get their kids to get on the computer, to, do, to focus, to do their homework. And that has you know, shown through the, the research that I've read and the articles where, where attendance at schools is way down, grades are way down across the board. And I can speak to Los Angeles in more than any other place because that's where I am. Uh, and I read things like the LA Times and, and, and those kind of articles. And unanimous across the board that, that, that this, the homeschooling just isn't working as well. It's better than nothing. It's certainly better than nothing. But it, there, there is so many issues with it. And, and that comes from it's just not what I think kids were really ever meant to do and also the school system was just never set up for it and then that doesn't even take into account underprivileged communities where the kids don't necessarily even have access to the computers or they don't have somebody there to help them or they don't understand how to use the computer or the parents don't understand how to use the computer or the, the school doesn't really have the access or they don't have internet you know, there's just so many factors that we never really thought of and, and depending on which community you're in there's different issues but we see issues pretty much across the board in terms of doing homeschooling. But again, it's better than, than nothing, probably. Well, I think you pointed out one of the big issues. And in so many ways, COVID accelerated our trends or exposed cracks in the system. And if you think about education, there were kids already being left behind anyway. Mm-hmm. And if you take a, a family, a lower income, maybe struggling with the system, parents an essential worker they can't afford childcare. in this age where the parent doesn't have doesn't can't afford childcare, has to go to work and kids left at home with maybe not the computer the phone or what have you like that kid really gets left behind and yeah that's sad it's the children who need the education and the system if you will to watch out for them the most are, are being left back behind it's tragic right and schools do so much more than just teaching just an education i mean we the brookings institute in july did an analysis and, and it showed that 16 percent of american families right now are experiencing food insecurity and a lot of kids get their school their, their, they get food at, and their lunches at school so i mean that's been a huge issue a lot of problems issues are picked up at school, the parents are not around. Maybe there's a single uh, family parent or child abuse, domestic child violence, abuse like parents, yeah. Exactly. So if, if there's an abusive parent or parents, then the only generally way that it's found is through school. Somebody else is around the child and, and they, they see bruising or they, they notice something or the kid speaks up and we're missing that. And we're also missing the, the mental health component of the schools. There's school counselors, there's guidance counselors. and, and we know that mental health emergency visits are up by 30% this year from last year. And, and a lot of that is, has been theorized that there's, there's just this lack of mental health uh, help because of it, we're not getting it at school. So you have to go to the emergency department for it. And so there, there's all of these things that we're missing by not having kids in school, which is devastating. So you mentioned the research. And, and before we got on air, you mentioned a study, which was pretty alarming, where it said that kids being out of school and at home decreased their lifespan mm-hmm. i think it was yeah, so JAMA. like that that's pretty was, like decreasing a child's lifespan right now is insane yeah, yeah that it was a very it was highly talked about a, a couple you know a little bit ago because this study came out and it was in the journal of american medical association and it was 
correlating how they, they they looked at when you're missing school, then therefore you're not getting the education, and, and the more school that you miss, the, the more years of life are going to be decreased over time. And they were talking about millions of years, and it's a very complicated uh very complicated algorithm on how they figured these things out, but they're talking about millions of years of life lost because kids are not in school. And that there's just so many reasons for that from all the things we talked about, from the abuse, the neglect, the increase in anxiety, depression, stress, suicides, but also just the lack of education. The lower your education, the the lower your chance of getting, you know, get a good job, getting out of poverty, getting all these things that we hope for uh, in the long run. And and that decreases the lifespan and so they were talking things like 50 million 54 million years of life lost so far this school year that they're predicting based on what they're seeing with kids being out of school so that's pretty devastating and terrifying if that is you know correct and who cares whether the number is exactly right if it's only 20 million years of lost life i mean that's it doesn't really matter what the exact number is the point is that it's important so the numbers are terrifying and with that said why is the discussion around kids being in school so 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 divisive, controversial, and, and emotional? It just it's, it's it's as a pediatrician, and I also did, had a background and I did a master's in epidemiology. It's infuriating and and demoralizing and devastating that we can't have discussions about important topics like this anymore. Everybody is so divisive about everything. And no matter what you say, it just seems like you piss off half the people. And no matter what you say, it's like you get into this cycle and then you say something that's kind of intelligent and then somebody else says something that's kind of intelligent. And then it just trails off into an anger fight. And you especially see this on, on social media platforms like you know Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is, where it starts off all logical and then it spirals off into a fight. And it doesn't, it doesn't always need to be a fight there. Everything really needs to be middle. You know, we need to think about the middle way and, and bringing things to the middle and, and taking all the information from both sides and then synthesizing that and coming up with the best answer that we can. But people take things from their own perspective and what they're seeing and they, they don't think a lot of times outside of themselves and they get so angry if somebody has a different opinion than them. But it's so nuanced and when it comes to school, there is no simple answer. It's not as simple as everybody should go back to school or everywhere or nobody should ever be in school again. There's such a gray area and such a middle ground for everything and every situation is different. And we need to take that into consideration. And the conversation generally goes something along the lines of we have to get kids back into school. And then everyone's like, yeah, we need to get kids back into school. And then somebody says something about, but it's not safe for those kids to go to school. What about the teachers? They're going to get sick. They're going to, we're going to pass this on. You're going to give it to the teacher and they're going to give it to the grandmother. Then somebody's going to die. And then it kind of spirals into, well, we need to have kids back in school versus you don't care about people's lives and you don't care about people dying. And, and I think for the most part, most people care about both. <laughs> they care about lives and they also care about their kids. And they're looking at all the evidence and they're saying, well, not everything totally adds up for most people here. There are a lot of places around the world that have kept schools running. There are a lot of places that have done that fairly safely. It's not perfect, but you know they've done a pretty good job of keeping things going. A lot of European countries have kept schools open without seeing major outbreaks for the most part. And, and we need to be doing what we can to get kids back into school. And I'm not sure that anybody doesn't think that kids should be back in school. I think that the issue is how, how and when. And, and people forget that. We in society have deemed 
school essential. We've absolutely decided that before the pandemic. You have to send your kids to school. It's illegal to not send them to school. You have to do that. So we've deemed it as essential. But then as the pandemic has gone on, it seems like many places in America, we haven't deemed it essential. You know, and, and we have in Los Angeles, we have, you know, marijuana weed stores are open. Those were labeled as essential. We have uh, grocery store workers. We have we have labeled certain things essential. And you have a marijuana that wasn't even legal a few years ago. That's open, but then schools are closed. It's just people are so confused about this stuff because not everything makes sense or follows any logical um, way of things. Because we've labeled certain things essential, but then school, you know, isn't labeled essential, at least here. And that. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, for our listeners, if you live in California, I don't think the leadership at the state of California has been the poster child of success in terms of exactly what you're talking about, identifying what can stay open, what can't stay open, essentially setting the rules. And it's one of the reasons that I think trust and leadership with this is at an all-time low. It's sad. Right. It's sad. Right. It is. It is. It's very much... Yeah, especially in America, it's very flip floppy. We're going back and forth what we're saying. You, you get a rule that happens one day and then they change the rule the next day. And every state and every county is doing things differently. And, and that is really tough on parents and families and doctors and everybody because we're looking for a plan and we need a simple plan and a long term plan. And yes, things do change and we need to update what we do based on the new research and science. But you can't be going back and forth every single day and you have to give people a plan. And I think 100% or at least 99% of people that I have seen and, and certainly every article that I have read in New York Times, LA Times, all the time says we need to get our kids back into school. And it doesn't matter which president before the next president, all of them have said we got to get kids back in school as part of our plan in the next you know, 100 days to get kids back in school. Everybody agrees upon that. The next question is how do we do that safely and can we do that in the whole country? Can we do it in some places? Is there a certain risk level in certain communities where we say, okay, the case rate is X, so therefore we deem that to be unsafe, so therefore those schools shouldn't be opened, or should we? do we have a system in place in the school where we can test if somebody does get sick? Because a lot of other countries have done this. They've done it just fine, and they do have outbreaks every now and again, but it, it seems for the most part like it's okay. And, and you really for sure have to segregate that by age because there's been more outbreaks in colleges than there have been in elementary schools and, and daycares. And you know, I can speak again to, to where I am in Los Angeles. The daycares have been open and the and the, those, those kind of places, the daycares and the, the, the kindergartens and a lot of those things have been open. And it seems like it's been fine. I haven't really heard of much in the way of outbreaks. There's certainly some here or there, but we might not be rid of, of coronavirus for ever, maybe years, maybe ever. So you're not going to be able to reduce the risk probably to zero. You just have to decide what's a reasonable risk. And, and in many other industries, we have decided there is a reasonable risk of what we're willing to do. I have I go to work every day. I'm a doctor. There's a risk there. I get that. Meat packagers and food packagers, they go to work you know, every day, and that's been deemed essential. Grocery store workers go to work every day, and that's been deemed essential. And I would argue that and I think teaching is essential. I think education is essential. I think everybody agrees on that. And so there, therefore, that in turn leads to how do we get everybody back in school as safely as possible, decreasing the risk. We're never going to have a zero risk. There's always a risk. There's always flu. There's always all sorts of diseases and, and people get sick. But how do we get that risk to be as minimal as possible to get kids in school safely and keep teachers safe and family safe and everybody safe? And it's not an easy answer. It's actually not an easy answer. But 
that question needs to be figured out and we have to have some plan that can evolve over time because we're absolutely starting to see all of these these out out outskirts sort of issues like depression anxiety going through the roof and we're trading one problem for another and we need to have balance so you mentioned depression anxiety and 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 trauma and i tend to Someone once said she thinks of trauma as little T and big T, and the little trauma and the big trauma, and that there's lots of little traumas. And I get the sense for some people during COVID, there's some big trauma. And I think for others, it's a lot of like collective little traumas. Mm -hmm. And and those little traumas just build up and they can really take a toll. And from your perspective, what do we know about trauma and its long-term mental health effects for for kids for for households who are, are just struggling with kids at, sco- at school not in school various states I, I think of we have a, a daughter who's four who we're lucky she's in preschool she has to wear a ma- like she, she wears a mask but like her preschool is department department of health in new york so like it's been on the whole time it's a little different for her but it's on but you know, there there are kids where it, they're older and it's on or off. Versus, I, I'm older. I know what's going on. This is ruining my social life. There there are various stages of development, if you will, with kids. And I'm curious. One, like, how does it differ? If we talk about like the getting back to like trauma and mental health implications, can you walk through like what's going on with like the the kids who are at a certain call it like three to five versus Mm -hmm. five to eight versus teens and like how to think about that and some of the examples of what's going on there i read something for kids working at home if you're working at home and you don't have childcare and your kids like asking you a question over and over and you're not answering that's like the worst thing Mm -hmm. you shouldn't do that but i'm gonna let's talk about the issues that we're seeing yeah, so I mean, what you just mentioned is, is referred to in the, the psychological as the serve and return. So it's the kid is passing you some information and then you as the parent are returning a response to them. And the research shows that the worst thing that you can do is not give a response, not respond to their needs. And it's a constant give and take. It's a constant serve uh, and return where literally everything they're doing from the time they're born, they're crying. That's a serve. You're giving the return. You're how are you responding to that? And that it's a consistent cycle. And kids are seeing that consistently. And and what we have seen through the the pandemic is that response is starting to dampen for a lot of parents. They can't handle things for themselves, so it's even harder for them to handle things for their kids. They just don't respond, or they they, they kind of stay away from it or not responding to what they did. And that that can be really tough because then kids are not getting the response they need, and then they're making their own judgments and assumptions based on that. To you, the first part of your question. So. There, every study kind of breaks down a little bit differently, but for the most of what I've read, the, the younger kids tend to do the worst with trauma, and the older you get, they tend to do a little better because they've had more life experiences. But obviously, a little baby, they're probably not going to remember anything. So if you're talking the first year and a half, two years, most of those kids, if if the trauma is already, it's a mental trauma, like something going on with with the pandemic, they might not even know that something's going on. It depends how the parents are obviously acting, those kind of things. But the that probably the three to five, three to 10 range tends to do the worst, worse than the older kids in general, any age range, obviously the kids can do, can ha- have trouble. And the research also shows that generally in any 
major world trauma. About 50% of the kids do just fine. They don't even necessarily know what's going on or they've been shielded from it in some way. And then about another 15, 20% of kids have some fairly significant symptoms that tend to recede over time. And then about 15 to 20% of kids have lifelong either PTSD or, or other symptoms. So that, that that's what we have seen. And we also know that it's also about the consistency, the level, how close you are to the issues. All of these things matter when it comes to trauma. So the closer you are to a bombing or a hurricane, those kids tend to do worse. So how, how do these, you mentioned symptoms, how do these concerns present in real life in children? What should parents be on the lookout for? It, Definitely depends on the age and also the gender. So for gender, we tend to see for for females more along the lines of stress, anxiety, general health symptoms. And for boys, it's more acting out and behavioral issues. So those are the, the bigger categories that you see. For any sort of stress, if you're talking about just health symptoms that you might see, we, it's usually those general vague symptoms that don't really point to anything, stomach aches and headaches and fatigue, not wanting to get out of bed, retreating more to their room, those kind of symptoms. So it's the general vague symptoms that usually you will see first, and that's true of a pandemic or really any stress. So do you think there are long-lasting effects here? And and how do we minimize, if we're in the middle of the storm and we're, we're coming out, hopefully, I think we're coming out, how do we minimize these effects on kids? When you read the research and you actually look at the numbers, I, I think they're mildly encouraging from what everything I've ever seen. You know, if you think about when you look at other huge traumas like like the Holocaust or, or other major wars and other things like that, they usually show that 50% of kids do just fine. So I think that's pretty encouraging. That's very encouraging. I, I, don't, I don't think that's something that I would have ever thought. I would have thought that the numbers would be much worse. The studies that I've seen from, the, from Harvard out of McLaughlin and pandemics and other things like that in the past. That's what he has shown other, or that's what they have shown other people have shown. So I think that's pretty encouraging, but will there be some long lasting effects? Sure. There, there definitely will be for certain kids uh, and certain families. And that's where parenting really comes in. Parents are the most important shield for their children. Every study says that everywhere. What worked the best during the Great Depression for the parents was, was shielding their kids from the issue. So Glenn Elder, Glenn Elder is the name, the person who did the Great Depression research and showed that kids did the best when they were shielded from the problems. And usually, especially at that time, it was moms that shielded them. So moms stayed home and and kind of shielded their kids and didn't let them know everything that was going on where the men went off to work and and made the money as as they could. And and that may or may not be as doable these days, but we've actually seen that happen again. We've definitely seen a, a change in the workforce during the pandemic where many, many more women than before have stayed home. We've seen that. I forget what the numbers, I think it was like 30% or, or some pretty large number. We haven't seen these kind of numbers of women working from home since like the 1970s was what I heard last. It's it just, it's changed very drastically because it's really, it's impossible to be a full-time parent and be a full-time employee and a full-time chef and all the other things that you have to do. Something has to give somewhere and be a full-time teacher, right? You got all these things. You have all, you know multiple kids at home. It's just not, it's not possible to do all those things or it's very difficult unless you have a very specific type of job. So something has to give and, and that, that shielding, the, the being home more, the being around your kids, the being someone that's responsive, that is shown to be very helpful. And then being consistent, having consistency in your child's life 
is very important in, in terms of things like, oh, we're going to have, uh, you know, this thing every Wednesday. We're going to have family dinner still every single night. We're going to go to the park every single day. We're going to keep some sort of routine to let you know that everything is going to be okay. If you're not, if they're not getting those messages, if they're not getting a routine, if they're hearing about all the terrible things all day, then they're going to start to internalize those things. And that's where we can run into trouble. And we know that, that trauma can be lifelong if it's not dealt with. And we know that from you know, sexual trauma, mental abuse, or abuse, mental abuse, all of these things from before. We see kids have all sorts of neurologic problems down the road from a, an early insult mental issue, mental problem. So consistency, rituals, make your child feel heard. Any other low-hanging fruit, if you will, in terms of <laughs> things parents should all be thinking of as we're trying to navigate through this difficult time? I, oh, I'm an integrative uh, physician, and I always love to think about how you can keep your body strong in general. What are the things that you do have some control over at home? Everybody feels out of control right now. The, this, the pandemic is, is outside of our control. We have There's people dying all around you, reading everything on social media. What can we do? That can be really tough. But there are some things that you do have some control over with yourself and with your family. I call those the, the seeds of health or the foundations of health. So being stress, environment and toxins, exercise, diet, and sleep. These are the foundations that we absolutely know are so key to keeping ourselves healthy, to keeping our immune system strong, whether it's a pandemic or any time or any disease in terms of chronic disease. And those are some of the things that you can have some focus on. And when you focus on some of those little things, then you start to see some spiral into a good direction. If you're stressed all day, every day, because you're reading social media all day, turn off your phone for an hour. Give yourself a little holiday. An hour, we're going to do dinner. There's no phone. There's no news. There's no media. We're not going to to talk about anything like this. We're gonna, what's a topic that we could talk about? Let's talk about something else. And just start to slowly, you know, change your mindset again from pandemic, pandemic to pandemic, music, movie, whatever, back to pandemic. But at least you start to give your body a little bit of a break because that chronic stress leads to inflammation. And what's the worst thing that you can do for getting sick? To be stressed. If you're gonna be exposed to something and you're already stressed, you're way more likely to get sick. We know that. Cohen did the landmark studies back in the late 1990s and early 2000s with stress and sleep. He took patients, he put viruses in their noses. I don't know who was volunteering to get viruses shoved in their noses, but they did it. <laughs> and, and consistently, the people that were more stressed or didn't have sleep or, or had less sleep got sick three, four, five times more than the other people. And if you're going to be exposed to you know, coronavirus or any other virus, if you're stressed, if you're not eating healthy, if you're not exercising you're way more likely to get sick. Or if you do get sick, you're likely to be, you know, get, get have more significant symptoms. We've seen that throughout this entire pandemic, that our health makes a huge difference. Not everybody that's unhealthy has a huge issue, and not everyone that's super healthy doesn't get sick, but there's a huge correlation there between pre-existing conditions, and, and you have control over that right now for this or anything else. So you're hitting on the silver lining, I think, of, of COVID, which is, strengthening our immune system, immune resilience has become front and center. And as adults, I think many of us know what we can do. All the things you mentioned, eat right, exercise, sleep, so on, chronic stress, inflammation, like we got it. But kids, I mentioned we have two little girls. We have a, a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. And so what we're thinking of, okay, how do we strengthen our kids' immune systems, whether it's now in, in 
in what we're dealing with COVID and, and forever. So like, how do we think about that? How can we strengthen our kids' immune systems? Number one, far and above for kids right now is diet. We have to think about our diet. Uh, it's so easy, and, and I've talked about this many times over the last few weeks in terms of, you know, we it's easy to cheat during, it's easy to cheat anytime, but it's easier to cheat during the pandemic. It's easier to say, well, I'm already exhausted and tired, let's go get the prepackaged food. You know, it's, it doesn't matter, just have a snack. Oh, it's fine, no, I'm not going out anyway, so I can eat the chips. And those are the, the decisions that, you eat one bag of chips, okay, fine, it's not going to be the end of the world. But if you start making those decisions consistently, then your health is going to suffer. Your kid's health is going to suffer. You are doing the, the purchasing of what you're bringing in your house, and you really have to be cognizant to make sure that we're bringing in healthy foods because we are built of what we eat, and if we don't have all the nutrients, we don't have all the vitamins from the food that we eat, then it affects our immune system and our kid's immune system, and they won't be able to fight off the virus that comes their way or or the chronic disease that they're that that's going to come their way because they don't have the building blocks that they need. So that's number one. Toxins is, is number two. So we, we we're in our homes more than ever right now, and so you got to think about all the things that you're bringing in your home, all the cleaners and uh, the products that you're using, the soaps. You can go and you can uh, buy non-toxic cleaners. You can you can use oil and vinegar. You can make little changes here and there, and each one of those small changes can have a huge effect on your overall health because your body can handle small amounts of inflammation, but each little thing can build up. And if you can be cognizant of some of those things and, and move into a different direction and start making some more health conscious decisions for your family, then you start seeing their, their health improve and, and then your mood improves. Everything is, is a snowball. I'm from Canada, so we think about a snowball going down the hill and getting bigger. And, and it's really easy to tip in either direction. And because of our mood and, and, and it's so easy to make unhealthy decisions and you have to make a conscious decision to kind of hold the line and say, okay, you know what, today I'm going to buy one thing healthier. Today I'm going to make one uh, different purchase. Today I'm going to go outside more. I mean, all the research, everything says vitamin D is the one thing that we absolutely almost know for sure at this point makes a huge difference in the pandemic. We need to have good vitamin D levels. And what are we doing? We're staying inside. We're in front of TV and computers and we're, we're afraid to go for a walk. And, and that's the thing that's helping people the most. We have, you have to go outside. You got to get exercise. But there's a lot of cases around, do it socially distant, do whatever you got to do. But get outside and force your kids to get outside. Go for a walk. <laughs> it's such a simple thing to say, but it's so easy to get into a groove and a momentum of being on the couch and just not doing things because you don't have to go to school and you don't have to go to work. Uh, and you can do everything from the computer and you have to consciously decide we're going to go for a walk today. We're going to go to the park today. We're going to go for a hike. We're going to go drive to the middle of nowhere. Even if you're t absolutely terrified beyond belief of coronavirus and you like, I don't want to be just go somewhere where there's nobody, you know, go to the desert, go to go to wherever. It depends where you live. Right? But go somewhere where there's no people, but get outside and get some sun. So with regards to nutrition, I know there's one no one size fits all approach with kids, but are, what what are some of the building blocks that are, are pretty good recommendations for anyone with kids in various stages where you should have omega threes or you should have like what what are some of the building blocks? Maybe take it by stage that every parent should make sure that you know what we need to get this in our in our kids in our kids uh, routine, if you will, or, or meal plan. 
Yeah, I don't even think I need to do it by stage. I think the answer runs true for everybody. It's eat real food, prepare the food as much as you possibly can within reason. Try to get foods that are organic, that don't have toxins, that aren't sprayed with pesticides, that aren't, aren't uh, genetically modified. Get out the dyes and the chemicals and the preservatives and the sugar. Uh, all these things run true, it doesn't matter what age, from a baby who's six months old for taking their first food to, to teenagers. Buy real fruit, food and prepare it itself. Read the labels on everything. My number one tip, even before the pandemic when it comes to food, is read the labels, please. Turn the box over and look at it. If it says cranberries and almonds and, and cashews, it's probably okay for you unless you have that allergy. But if you if you read it and it says tetramethyl hydrobromo whatever it's probably not good for you so just don't don't get that thing there's so there, there's a lot of food that you can buy that's healthy that isn't that expensive some things are a little bit more expensive but it's not necessarily more, that much more expensive to eat healthy or at least to make some choices that are a little bit healthier and organic as much as you can if you make those simple choices then you will see improvements in your kid. There's one thing that I see that makes a huge difference on the health of kids is the diet changes. And also just thinking about things that cause inflammation. So our wheat and our milk these days is not what it used to be, especially in America. And we see gluten and dairy sensitivity more than any other foods in the office. And sometimes it's, it's a very simple change of taking gluten or dairy out of the diet can make a huge difference for kids. So again, nothing changes here. There's just something to think about. Your, if your kids are sensitive, but it really comes back to thinking about it, thinking about what you're purchasing and, and spending the time. It's all about time when you're preparing food. It's a lot easier to, to get something that's prepared or something that's been prepackaged versus is making it yourself. And understandably, parents are going through a lot. And, and so it's easier to buy the prepackaged thing sometimes. And, and I get that. It doesn't mean you don't have to ever do it. But when we're talking about what we can do to make a difference, that's the number one thing overall that every single parent can do who's not making that decision already is try to try to prepare your own food because that will actually make a significant and, and there was a study out of Berkeley where they looked at the chemicals in, in urine and they had the participants stop or start eating organic food for a few weeks and the, the chemicals in their urine dropped by 90% after two weeks. Wow. You know, it's a, it's a very fast change in, in your body. I mean, your body is, we have kidneys, we have a liver, and they work very well, and they can detoxify us very well, but only to a point, right? You you have a, you get exposed to a little bit of lead, you're fine. You get exposed to a little bit more lead, you're not fine. You, a little bit of iron, you're okay. A, little, a lot of iron, you get a whole bottle, you die, right? Your body can handle some things, but it, it's a buildup. And so we, we have to think about these things and decrease our toxic load, because if your body's not dealing with the chemicals, it can deal with the virus. So in terms of chemicals, like are, are there some big watchouts that people are unaware of that kind of lurk in the household? I think, well, pesticides are probably the, the biggest one. So that, that's where the organic versus non-organic comes in. Glyphosate is, is obviously a big one, but I'm sure there's, you know, there's lots of other ones as well. And, and it's just when you have that organic stamp or sticker on there, then you know that you know they're doing everything correctly, then hopefully they weren't sprayed with chemicals and pesticides, and that at least you know, decreases your chemical load to some degree. The plastics also is a big one in food, not using 
uh, not microwaving things, plastic or using plastic as much as you can, not storing things in plastic, use glass wherever you can, because you know, the, the chemicals can leach in and, and you know, we, we, don't, we don't necessarily go all the way into all the chemical stuff, but, but I think that um, you know, plastic is a big one and, and uh, glyphosate's another big one. Got it. So <laughs> I'll go back to earlier in our conversation, we were talking about the unfortunate world we live in where it's very polarizing and very hard to have a conversation online about anything nuanced in the world of, <laughs> of nutrition, science. Mm-hmm. So one, it's hard to have a conversation with without someone getting extraordinarily angry and then also without being censored and so without going down the censorship rabbit hole i just want to touch on it like it is an issue right now with any views that are counter to the consensus whatever the hell the consensus means (laughs) yeah so what's your take on that it's devastating it's it's horror it's absolutely horrible that the censorship is happening in a way that it's happening. It's not good for anybody. It doesn't matter what side of the the argument you're on. As soon as people start to decide what is fact, then you start to lose science. I mean, science by definition is the continual thirst for knowledge, the continual, you're always finding new information. And whatever you know to be true today isn't necessarily going to be true tomorrow. And that's by nature of what it is, is that it's always continual research and you know something and then somebody does a new study doesn't find what you had found before and then you question what you found before and you make decisions to whether this new study is actually useless or good and if this is something that you think is actually good then more people look into it and maybe you change what you think was right but as soon as you start to suppress the dominant narrative or the 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 narrative that isn't dominant then you may be losing out on some very important information you might have Let's say Ebola, for example. Okay, you have an Ebola outbreak going on, and somebody is like, oh, green beans can cure Ebola. Okay, well, if you're like, no, that's crazy, let's censor that, that there's no way that could be true. What if it turns out to be true? You don't know. You need to have this information out there and let people decide what's crazy or what's not crazy. There's lots of crazy stuff out there on the internet. I mean, that, that is the, by nature of what it is. But the, the fact is that because we have access to all of this information, it allows us to move forward at an exponential and fast-paced rate. And yes, there, there's lots of crazy stuff that people say, but it's up to the scientific community to disprove what they say, I think, through discussion and research. And if somebody posts something that's against the dominant narrative, it shouldn't be suppressed or censored. It should be discussed and discredited based on science, based on, on what has been found. And I think that's one of the big thing that's really lacking from the leadership of the way that this has been handled is really coming out and saying, we're making this decision because of research report X, Y, and Z. And I'm sure they may have their reasons, but I think the message isn't getting across to the people. It's kind of very flip-floppy in a lot of places and everybody's doing different things. And you're like, well, over here, 10 minutes away, they're doing something totally different. Where's the research? Everybody should be able to look at all the, the dominant research and say, well, here's why we're making this decision. But just because somebody comes out and says, well, that actually isn't true. My research shows this. It doesn't mean that your research isn't valid. It might be the only thing that's right. And if, if maybe so, that, that gets out there and somebody else says, oh, wow, that's actually right. They go do a study. And then now you have 10 studies on the same topic. That's how science changes. That's how we get new information because 
one day we think one thing and we're very sure that's true, that the earth is flat. And then other people say, well, actually I've seen X, Y, and Z, so it's not flat, it's round. And then the next people say, okay, well, you're crazy. We're gonna, we're gonna lynch you that because you say that it's, it's round, then you're never gonna learn that it actually is because you're just gonna believe what, what is there. So it's, it's a very dangerous place to be when you start censoring information that you don't like because who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong? You have, we're, we're talking about social media and there's fact checkers, right? But who's fact checking the fact checkers? Who's deciding what is fact? I mean, there's some things that are obviously pretty obvious and you're like, okay, that's really crazy. Shouldn't be saying that. But still at the end of the day, it, especially in America, people have the freedom to say all sorts of crazy things. That's, that's the definition, that's the backbone of America, right? And I'm Canadian, so I know this, you know, learning and moving to America, but freedom of speech allows people to say crazy things. But sometimes those crazy things change the world. And if you sh if you silent the, the, the minority, then you lose your ability to grow. And you lose, I think, public confidence because you give credence to crazy by shutting it down. Because then people start to say, oh, look, I, I said X, Y, and Z. They shut it off, uh, they shut it off of, of Facebook, they shut it down. And then people, well, that must be true then. It must be true if it's so, if it's so horrible that they had to censor it. Instead of saying having a bunch of scientists come on and say, no, this was an absolutely crazy thing done. There's no validity to this. Here's what we know and here's what the science is. Then people will see that and they'll be able to make a decision. But right now it seems like we're telling people what to do instead of teaching them what to do. Agreed. It's dangerous and it's complicated and uh, hopefully we figure this out, but it's problematic. It's, it's censorship and I think it's a lot of medicine and science right now. It's a lot of telling people what to do instead of teaching them what to do. And in doctor by nature is, is teacher. That's what it you know, means. And, and we're supposed to be convincing you of our position, not telling you. We're supposed to be convincing you based on the best research and evidence available. Here's what we do. And this is again, where it goes back to the beginning topic of schools again. We need to get the, all the evidence together and we need to convince that we either need to open them or close them based on whatever the best data is that we have and then move forward. And it has to be balanced. It can't just be about death from coronavirus and it can't just be about depression and anxiety and suicides outside of school because we're not there. It has to be both and you have to be balancing both because they're both bad, right? They're both bad and we don't want either one, but the reality is you're gonna have both of them and you're never gonna get rid of the, both of them totally. So how do we minimize that risk and how do we balance between the two to keep people as safe as possible and keep our kids as safe as possible while letting them get an education and socialization and, and minimize the risks that come with them not being in school. And that, that conversation just doesn't seem to be happening. It just seems to be more of don't go to school or, oh, you live in this state. No, we're opening up everything. I don't care what's going on right now out there. And, and that's it's not the way it was ever meant to be. It's supposed to be, you know, it's supposed to be a democracy. We're supposed to discuss things and vote and think about them. And we have lots of smart people in the country, much smarter than me. This isn't up to me as a doctor to say, here's what we should be doing in California, Los Angeles. I don't know all the details, but I know that there are lots of very smart people that can get together and can come up with a report, can come up with a, uh, can get on, now we have social media, get online and speak to why we're making these decisions and let's make a plan that can can change. Make a plan for the next year or six months and say, if this happens, then we do this. If this happens, then we do this. If this happens, then we do this. 
and give people some hope of the, that there's a plan. When you have no idea what's going to come tomorrow, it's really hard to make any life decisions. And, and, and people need, they need an end post. They need a goal. They need a, they need a plan. And it needs to be simple. It needs to be something that people can follow across all socioeconomic status, across all counties, across all states. Keep the plan simple, reduce the harm, and come together and don't fight about everything. We, if, if aliens came down to Earth right now today and we're trying to wipe everybody out, you would nobody would be fighting about you know school or anything. Nobody would think about these things, right? It, it's We're all humans and we all need to work together to get over this and move forward for our kids. So in closing, yeah, I think we covered a lot of the, the challenges right now. And what are some of the opportunities? What excites you? How do you want us to come out of this? I, I'm excited, one, after doing really the research on this topic to see that most kids through any pandemic are resilient and will do just fine. I think that's a really useful statistic for parents to have because I think that the majority of parents think that Everything that's going on, they're where kids are wearing their masks, they're not seeing other kids, it's gonna ruin them for life. But the reality is that's not true of, of any of the other pandemics, of any of the other traumas, and so most kids will, will do just fine. I think that um, this really is starting to bring to light an, an importance of our immune systems, an importance of health, uh, an importance of the healthcare system and what that could mean, and also the importance of of leadership and voting and all sorts of things of how that all those things matter. And, and I think that hopefully through this pandemic, once we're on the other side, there's going to be a much greater focus on health and a much greater focus on the immune system and, and how important keeping ourselves healthy is because we've seen how much of a devastation has been caused, especially in people who have pre-existing conditions. And so as a pediatrician, that puts that shines the light back on me to say, hey, our job is to make sure that kids never get to where we are today. We don't have the levels of chronic disease that we have today, that we prevent this from happening by thinking about the foundations and the toxins and the diet and all the things that, that lead to chronic disease if we don't focus on them now. And as an integrative doctor, that makes me really excited because that's what I was talking about for the last several years. But I think that that's coming to light here and, and it's almost a requirement at this point. Like we have no choice but to do this when, as we move forward. And I think that's encouraging because we can improve the future health for our kids overall. You know, if we can get out of this pandemic over the next hopefully few months, then we can work on building a better future for our kids. Because right now, you know, even before the pandemic, it was not that bright. The chronic disease rates are continuing to go up. The rates of chronic disease are 50% of adults or more. That's not a good thing. So we need to make those changes. And this has brought health to the forefront. Amen. We'll close there. <laughs> Joel, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Stay healthy and stay safe, everyone.